We are uh, in Matthew chapter 9, and just to give you a little bit of a backdrop on Matthew, um, Matthew was written to present the king who was prophesied, the Messiah who was prophesied back in the Old Testament and Isaiah and Jeremiah. All those Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus, and Matthew is the guy that's presenting that. And for some of you, you may remember before we ever jumped into the first chapter, I gave some background on Matthew as the writer. And that's exactly what we're looking at today, his story. Now what's striking to me about Matthew's story is he only gives one verse to his testimony. If you go to the Christian bookstores today and you go to the biography section, you'll see books that thick, like two inches thick, where guys telling you how they came to Jesus and how they've been used by Jesus. Matthew only mentions his name twice in his whole book. It's this time, and he mentions it once when he lists all the twelve. And I mean, that, that is a humble guy. That's humble. That's humility. And you know, in fact, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew is not quoted one time as saying anything. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. But here's the guy that God used to write the first book of our New Testament. He wrote one of the eyewitness accounts of Jesus, and yet, he's a humble guy. He's a humble guy. He's a guy that God knew when he said, follow me, exactly what he was going to do with him. Guys, that's why it's so important. When you come to something like this, or when you have any encounter uh, where you are being taught, or you are being spiritually encouraged, that you understand that everything God is pouring into you is not so you can be a better Christian, it's so that you can be used to spread His kingdom glory. It's, it's so you can be a disciple maker. And I am absolutely convinced that we have so blown it because we've allowed this Western Greek model of disciple making to infiltrate the church here and so what we've got is a bunch of people that just eat and never go and reproduce and and a good shepherd has a sheep he keeps him healthy so that the sheep can eat and reproduce that's the job of the sheep the sheep eat and they reproduce and and that's all they do but for us 95 percent of people in the church have never told one person how to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's not the end. That's just the beginning of the process of discipleship. And I was talking to one guy and he was telling me, man, I, I, I shared Christ with this guy and he trusted Christ. And I was, I was like, that's awesome. And then what happened? What do you mean? Well, he, I got him involved in church. See, our thinking is we get him involved in church. He goes to church. And the church is going to do it, but the church isn't doing it. I mean, you can go into a church Sunday school, you can go into a church, even small groups, and you can sit and never really be encouraged to go be reproducing other people just like you. You can sit and listen to the Bible be taught, you can get all this information, and you just sit and eat and eat and eat, and you never go exercise. And what... what Matthew is, is, is laying out to us what he's been laying out, that following Jesus is hard, it's difficult, it's not convenient. It's not a message we hear. And, and we looked at that in Matthew 8, when these guys come up and said, hey, I'll follow you anywhere. And he says, no, I don't think so. Because the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. It's not going to be easy. 
And another guy says, well, I'll follow you, but first I've got to go bury my dad. And he goes, no, you know, let the dead bury the dead. Well, I'll follow you, but let me go say goodbye to my family. No, <laughs> no, you need, you know, if you put your hands to the plow and look back, you're not fit to be my disciple. Somewhere along the line in America, we've differentiated between salvation and discipleship, and we've made this false dichotomy that you don't see taught in Scripture anywhere. You don't see Jesus and any of the disciples emphasizing just salvation over discipleship. We've made that dichotomy. We've done that in our culture. And they, they, when they call people to follow, you don't see anywhere in Scripture where they say, ask Jesus into your heart. Lift your hand. Walk an aisle. Whatever. There's nothing really emphasizing that. It's always process-oriented. Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. And that's what he does today with Matthew. Matthew was also known as Levi before he had the name change. And last week, or I'm sorry, not last week, two weeks ago, we looked at the paralytic. He was in Capernaum, probably at Peter's house, and they let this paralytic down through the roof. And the paralytic, when he's in front of Jesus, Jesus looks at him and doesn't say, be healed. He looks at him and says, what? Your sins are forgiven. Now, that was strange. Your sins are forgiven. And, and the Pharisees are going, who is this guy that can forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. They were mumbling to themselves, not saying it to Jesus. Jesus knew their thoughts because he was God, knew what they were saying. And he said, what do you think is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say be healed? And we know that it's a lot easier to say your sins are forgiven because there's no way to verify that this side of heaven. You can't do it. But he said, so that you know that I have authority over sin, rise, take up your mat and walk. And that's what, exactly what the guy did. And he basically was saying, I am Lord over sin. I'm Lord over the consequences of sin. Because this guy was a paraplegic, quadriplegic, whatever, because of sin. Not maybe his own sin, but just the general consequence of what happened with Adam and Eve. And Jesus is saying, I'm Lord over sin, and I'm Lord over the consequences of sin. And so he told him to rise. Well, right on the heels of that, in Matthew, Mark, and the Luke account, we see the calling of Levi. And I believe the reason that he puts it on the heel of that is because the disciples were probably scratching their head going, well, if he's Lord over sin... What's the scope of it? How big does it go? Who can he forgive? He just forgave this guy, and the guy didn't even say what he had done. And so on the heels of it, he walks by Matthew. Now, to really get a, a picture of who Matthew is, see, when we think about a tax collector, we think about the IRS. Now, I know we don't like the IRS that much. We don't have near the disdain for them that these Jewish people had for their tax collectors. Because for us to be in the same ballpark, it would be like, let's say you started a, a patriotic group to call America back to patriotism. And a guy walks in and he wants to join your group and he's got an ISIS shirt on and he supports ISIS. How are you going to feel when he comes into your group? You're not going to like it. You're going to go, whoa, whoa, you're in the wrong place. Or, let's say you've got a bunch of women who are wanting to uh, help rape victims and women that have been sexually abused. 
And Harvey Weinstein comes in and wants to join that group to help. How are they going to feel about that? They have nothing but disdain for him. Or let's say you've got a bunch of people that have been swindled and uh, Bernie Madoff wants to come in and he's selected to run and be a part of the leadership of that group. These people are going to go, you're out of your mind. So think for a second. When Jesus walks by Levi and says, follow me, what do you think was going through Peter, James, and John's head? I mean, they're men just like you and I. They were excited. They had seen the miracles. They were with Jesus. They were part of the inner circle already. And now He's going to bring this guy in? This is one of the most hated guys in all of Israel. Matthew is the greatest conversion probably except for Paul in the whole New Testament. I mean, just to give you a refresher, when Rome went into some place, people would lobby to be tax collectors. There were two types. There was a, a, a great tax collector who did the, 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 like the income tax, the, uh, the uh, property tax, and the poll tax. He was called a, a, what's called a gabai in, in Greek, and it's, it's like a, um, it, it, Zacchaeus was a gabai. And that, that's just the large, they did the general big taxes. For uh, the property tax, they had to give one-fifth of all the wine and fruit, grapes. Uh, they had to give uh, one-tenth of all their land produce. For the uh, income tax, it was 1%. And you couldn't, there was no deductions. They just put it on you, and that's what you had to pay. You couldn't be sitting there arguing with them. And if you couldn't pay it, they would take your children, your animals, your property, whatever they wanted. And now that was the goodbye. Then you had the special use taxes. Like for us would be like the cell phone tax, gasoline tax, those kind of things. But for them, it was the road tax. It was the export-import tax. It was the sales tax for goods if they sold fish. It was crossing a bridge tax. It was if you had a, a wagon that they, you were pulling and it was a two-axle wagon, they charge you one thing. If it was four axles, they charge you uh, something else. And they had the power of the Roman government behind them. So these were hated people. And the special use guys were called mochas. You may remember that term. Mochas. They were mochas. And you had two within that group. You had the big mochas and the little mochas. The big mochas was a guy who would hire somebody to be his little mochas to, 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 to go and basically get the taxes from people so that he didn't have to get his hands dirty. So he could still be a witness in a trial. So people didn't look at him like they looked at the prostitutes and the other people. But the little mochas, he was so greedy, he didn't want to hire anybody. So he would go in and actually sit at the tax booths himself. And the little mochas, we know Matthew was one because it says in this passage he was sitting at the tax booth. All right, he was a little mochus. And so, as we look at Matthew, and we look at this passage, let's read it, and we're going to look at these five, really five observations that Jesus is teaching us through this. And I'll give them to you, and then we'll go back and we'll look at them after we read it. The, the first one is that people who are fallen are why Jesus came. They're why He came. People who are fallen are why He came. The second one is that people who are forgiven naturally want to glorify Jesus and share Him with other people. Third, and I'll I'll say these again, people who are self-righteous are self-focused. They care more about their reputation than the welfare of other people. And the fourth thing is that God calls us to be authentic followers 
not keepers of religious ritual. He wants us to be authentic followers, not keepers of religious ritual. And the last one is that God calls us to follow His plan, not our version of His plan. And we're really good at taking God's plan and trying to morph it into something that we like and can fit within our schedule and our, our, our vision. And that's not what it's about. And he addresses that with these people. So, Matthew 9, starting in verse 9, we're going to read down to verse 17. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came, and they were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Well, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, so both are preserved. Now, Matthew lays out his story, says, as Jesus passed by from there, talking about being at the house where he healed the paralytic, he saw a man, but the man's name was not Matthew. The man's name was Levi. But he doesn't even want to use his old name. Now you know the name Matthew means gift of Jehovah. It means gift of God. Who do you think gave Matthew that name? You think he chose it? Do you think a man who lived a life like he had lived prior to this point would name himself gift of God? I don't think he did. I think Jesus probably gave him the name the same way Peter did. We don't know that for sure, but I can't imagine for a second that a guy would give himself a name, gift of Jehovah, who had that kind of, He was so humble, I can't see it. But I can see Jesus saying, you know what, Matthew? You had the name Levi. You were supposed to be a servant of the people. You were supposed to serve. You know the Levites? You know what they're... They didn't get an inheritance. They didn't get money. They didn't get this stuff. What they got, their inheritance was God. If you go back and you look in the Old Testament, that was the only tribe that didn't get land, that didn't get this stuff. They got God. That was their inheritance. And... Matthew spent his life being greedy, collecting money from people. I mean, this was not the first time he had encountered Jesus. Jesus probably lived in Capernaum. Matthew had heard about what was going on. And so Jesus walks by and Matthew says, he saw me and he says, follow me. And all he says is, and he rose and followed him. That's it. And he rose and followed him. You know what Luke says? He left everything. The Luke passage says he left everything. Everything is what? Everything. His money. His security. 
And, and it's a little different from Matthew leaving his stuff than the disciples who were fishermen. You know why? They could always go back to fishing. But when Matthew left his job as a little mocus, there was another little mocus waiting right there to jump right in. And it would have been real hard for him to come back and reestablish himself after making that decision to leave. And so he left. And, and when he left, the people around him, the first thing he did is he calls people to his house and the Pharisees are going, what is going on? This guy's called this sinful guy. He's hanging around these kind of people. And Jesus quotes Hosea. And, and it, it really the crux of the whole passage is in verse 13 when he says, listen, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He came for people who were fallen. People who are sinful. That's why He came. And somewhere along the line, we get into the church, or we get into, we come to faith, and we start to think that we deserve what He's done for us. We forget who we really are. I don't think Matthew ever forgot that. I think, I think the thing is, when, when you, He knew He was dirty. Dave, you do prison ministry. Do you have to convince those guys they're dirty? They know they're broken. See, for us, so when we start being part of Bible studies and we start singing in church and we start giving to uh, the church and you know fellowshipping and all that, we can start to develop an attitude just like the Pharisees has that when we look on people, well, who are those people? And we start to think that people are outside the bounds of God's love that they can't be changed, that they're impossible to change. This guy was an impossibility for all the Jewish people. Who are we to dictate who he saves and who he doesn't save? He came for people just like this, and, and they didn't get that. He was a friend of tax collectors and prostitutes. Tax collectors and prostitutes. What if, Dave, how would you like to be lumped in that category? Dave... Dave and prostitutes. I mean, that, that just it has a tinge of dirtiness to it that we all think about, and yet, that's why He came. He came. You know, Do you think that's why Jesus had a prostitute in His lineage? That that was part of the plan? Well, He had more than just one prostitute. He had a lady that pretended to be a prostitute. He had a prostitute. He had a woman that committed adultery. And He had a Moabite who was a product of incest. So I don't think you can get much more toward than that. I mean, that's you know, pretty, pretty bad. But, so you know this stuff better. Than yeah, well, no, I'm just saying. <laughs> but, but you know what? You know, I did a message on that passage called Four Women Who Sing Amazing Grace. Yeah. That those women are a picture of God's grace. And this is exactly what the point is. He came for fallen people. Our mistake sometimes is we forget we're fallen. We're still fallen people. We're redeemed. But we are in spiritual rehab this side of heaven. Nobody in this room has it together where they don't need Jesus. We've got to preach the Gospel to ourselves every day. And we forget that. And we start looking down on people that might be a little worse than we are. Instead of looking in a mirror, all I have to do is look in the mirror and I know who I am. 
Matthew knew who he was, and he's writing. And the first thing he does is he goes out and he invites all of his friends, prostitutes, tax collectors. Those were the only people that would hang around him. So he just goes and does what he thinks is natural. He says, I want you to meet this guy. He's, he's, he wants me to be on his team. Do, 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 I don't know if, if you ever, growing up, I remember one time I always wanted to be on this one kid's team when we picked like Sandlot football. And I never got to be on his team. I was so excited to be on his team. He was a good quarterback, man. I always wanted to be on his team. I never got on there. I was, but, but Jesus said, I want you, Matthew. And the cool thing is for us, he says, I want you. I want you. And, and we forget. We, we think we deserve to be on his team, and we don't. None of us do. And what he's saying here is, listen, you know, I came for the fallen, and... People who are forgiven naturally go... Matthew didn't go through evangelism 101. He hadn't gone to seminary. He didn't go anywhere. He just goes and starts telling people, hey, come meet this guy. Which is what we should be doing. Again, what's the purpose of sheep? To eat and reproduce. So why aren't we reproducing? I think we've forgotten what He's done for us. We've somehow lost the importance of what really happened when He redeemed us. People who are forgiven want to glorify Him and they want to share Him with other people. He threw a banquet. He, if you look at the other passages, it's at His house. It's at Matthew's house. And so He just invites everybody. The Pharisees went berserk. They're like, wow, this guy's partying with prostitutes and tax collectors. Tax collectors couldn't even go into the synagogue. And they just were livid, livid over it. But they were like the same people, you know, back in Luke, I think it's Luke 4, where Jesus is in Nazareth, and he, he, he gives, they give Him the scrolls, and He opens it up, and he, he says, I came to proclaim freedom to the captives, sight to the blind. And He's just reading from Isaiah this passage. And then he sits down and he says, "People, all the people's eyes are on him, it says in Luke 4. And it's, he says, today this has been fulfilled in here. There were no blind people in there probably. There were no captives in there. It was a synagogue. All the people in there thought they were good. They thought that they deserved to be there. That's why they wanted to throw him off a cliff. If you go back and look at Luke 4. They're going, wait a minute. We don't need that. We're good. We're in the synagogue. We're God's chosen people. And that's how we can feel sometimes. Just like the Pharisees, self-righteous people. People who are self-righteous or self-focused. They go, why does your teacher eat with these people? Instead of thinking, why doesn't he save them? Why does he eat with them? They care more about their reputation. And, And here's what's great. Jesus quotes Hosea. And he says, listen, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You, you folks are all concerned about what you're doing for me and you're missing the fact that I really want you to be merciful, gracious. Grace has been given to you. Why do you not give it to other people? And they didn't see that. Makes me think of Luke 15. You know, Luke 15, the same thing was going on. At the beginning of Luke 15, the Pharisees are grumbling because he's around prostitutes and people like that. Jesus tells three stories to illustrate one point. Only time I think in Scripture he does it, where he tells three stories back to back with the same point. And it's to illustrate God's love for the sinful people. And he, he tells a story of sheep, 99 sheep are here, one goes missing. What does a shepherd do? He goes, looks for the one. 
and says when he brings him back, what happens? There's rejoicing. He said there's a woman who has a coin and she loses that coin. She looks for it diligently and then she comes back. She finds it and what? There's rejoicing. And then there's a son, a father with two sons. One goes away. He spends the money. He disrespects the father. Says basically, I know you're going to die. Give me your money before you die. He takes the money. He goes and spends it all on wild living. And then when it all runs out, all his friends leave him and he's left to eat pig food, which for a Jewish boy was terrible. And he's at the end of his rope and he says, I know my dad's a good man. I'll go back and I'll tell him I'm not worthy to be your son. He was humble. But what had to happen before he was humble? He had to be broken. And when he was broken, he says, I'll go back. And he goes back. And what, what happens? The, the father is looking from a long way off. He sees him and he runs. He runs. It's the only time in Scripture you see God running. Jesus never ran anywhere. But that position, he's running to see the son coming back. And the older son goes, I, I've been here. I did all this stuff for you. And you didn't throw me a party. He says, you've always been here. See, the Pharisees didn't get it. They didn't get that he came for mercy. He didn't really... It's not that he doesn't want sacrifice, but mercy is what he really wants. And so when we look down on people, when we look at people with pride... It's hard to be compassionate when you're prideful. They weren't very compassionate people. And what happens is he, he basically says, listen, I didn't come to call righteous people. I came to call sinful people. He calls us to be authentic followers, guys, not just keepers of religious rituals. That's what their problem was. See, our rituals can be singing hymns. It can be giving. It can be uh, reading the Bible, studying the Bible. That, that study we do can become a ritual. If it's not something you're doing to really grow in your relationship with the Lord, it can just be ritual. And you think by doing that, God's going to love you more. God is never going to love you more for anything you do here on earth. He loves you already through Christ. Period. Now, does that mean he, He's not disappointed sometimes in things we do? Yeah, He brings discipline into our life. But He's not going to love you more. His love for us is based on what Christ did on that cross 2,000 years ago. We can't add anything to that. And, and so... God's calling. Listen, remember that the whole Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it was showing the hypocrisy of the Pharisees that they focused on the external. This is the same thing we're going to see over and over and over. And that's why we got to always guard against focusing on just what's on the outside. Because that's why it's so important to be in these one on one relationships. And that's why we're so uncomfortable with it. We don't like people looking on our inside. We don't like being transparent because when we're transparent, people might see how ugly we really are. It's true. <clears throat> Nobody in here is pretty on the inside. If you think you are, you're mistaken. None of us are pretty. Apart from Christ, there's nothing good in any of us. That's why we see such evil. That's why a guy can go in and shoot up a school, man. I mean, that's why people can go up and shoot a church up. We are evil, every one of us. 
All these people that do these things are pushed. Pushed. When I was in the Marine Corps, I'd see people that were in stressful situations, and sometimes they didn't respond too well. They were nice before they got into those situations, but boy, you put them under stress, the chips are down, and, and you see people's true colors, what comes out on the inside. Everybody can be pushed to a point, unless you have Christ in your life. Christ is the only thing that can be a rock for us that we can hold on to. But we're in this human body. And what he's saying here in this passage is, listen, don't hold on to the rituals as being what gets you into relationship with me. Don't think that makes you and God like this because it doesn't. It's not the ritual. And that's why the people didn't get it. They're going, wait a minute. Your disciples, why are they not fasting like we are? Why, why, we're fasting. The Pharisees are fasting. They're supposed to be doing this stuff if they really love God. They didn't get it. And what he says is, listen, the bridegroom is here. Nobody fasts when the bridegroom's there. In fact, he's, what, what he's saying is there was a disconnect between their religion and reality. What was their religion about? What was the purpose of the Jewish religion? Laws and well, I know, no, the laws were the means. What was the purpose of it? What was the purpose of the Jewish religion? What was Abraham's deal with God? It, it, it was to bless the world, but it was to be in relationship with God. Right? But God Himself was in their midst and they didn't recognize it. Because of their religion, they couldn't even see the God of the universe who was there. Some people did. Remember the centurion? All you got to do is speak it, Lord. Just a few chapters back. All you got to do is speak it, Lord, and He'll be healed. I too am a man under authority. He recognized it. Matthew, Matthew, I'll follow you. He left everything. He recognized it. The friends of the paralytic recognized it. But the religious people, they didn't even see it. And that's what I'm saying. There's a disconnect. There's no connection between their religion and the ritual and the reality of what was going on. That's why they said, and these were disciples of John the Baptist. Those were a little step above the Pharisees. And if you remember from the book of Acts, you still see guys who are only disciples of John the Baptist. And, and they probably start off good, but what had John already told some of his followers to do? He'd already said, hey, there he is. Go follow him. So why, why does it distinguish between disciples of John the Baptist here when Jesus is already here on the spot? Because they probably were more into the ritual than they were the relationship. And that's the point. You see, that was their plan. They thought, okay, God's done this amazing thing. I got baptized. I've recommitted my life. And now I'm, I'm following and we're fasting and we're doing all this stuff and that's making me right with God. And then God Himself is there and they don't even recognize it. And, and they can't understand why these guys who said they love God aren't fasting like they are. And then He tells them this, He gives them this analogy about you can't take a, a new patch and put it on a hole in an old garment. Because what's going to happen when it's washed? You know what happens when you wash this, the, the new garment? It shrinks. And it'll tear it even more. And he, what he's saying is, I didn't come to do a renovation project of your religion. This is a whole new teardown. He doesn't want to renovate us. He's wanting to rebuild us completely. 
This is new. This is not what you thought it was. I'm not here to just add on to what you're doing. It's all about the relationship with me. That's what he's saying. The, the Pharisees didn't see a need for repentance. And I want to go back to that story in Luke 15. And all three of those stories, in the sheep, and the coin, and the son. Do you know what it said in all three of them? It said, when one sinner repents. Repentance is one of the things missing from most of our evangelistic preaching today. We don't talk about it. People have made this statement that you're adding works to salvation, which is absolutely ludicrous. You are not adding anything. The, the repentance is a work of the Spirit in your own heart to say, I'm turning from my old life and I'm turning to Christ. I'm turning from these idols and I'm turning to God. You can't turn to something if you don't turn from something. So it's ridiculous to say that to tell somebody they need to repent is to add works to salvation. Jesus preached repentance. Peter preached repentance. Paul preached repentance. It's all throughout the New Testament. And in that story in Luke 15, three times it talks about it. In the same passage about Matthew over in Luke, it says to call to repentance as well. So here's the deal. True believers in Jesus, first thing they do is they follow Him. They follow Him. Second thing, they have compassion on unbelievers. And the third thing is they reject rituals and legalism. That's really what He's saying here. Matthew followed. And what did He do? First thing He does, He goes and invites all His friends. He goes and invites all His friends there because He wants them to meet Jesus. And then He followed Jesus. He didn't get caught up in the legalism or the rituals. He was with Jesus. That's what the Christian life is about. It's about being with Jesus. Reading the Bible, if you just read the Bible to learn information, you're missing the point. This is about being with Jesus. That's what it's about. He's here. He's alive. You know, and I, I just was thinking about this, and I know it's time we got to close. When's the last time you had a Jesus party where you just invite people over to talk to them about Jesus? You just want to share about what He's done in your life. Christmas is a great time to do that. Thanksgiving's a great time to do that. Just to have a few people over and say, you know, I just want to take a moment and share something that happened in my life a while back or whenever it happened. And uh, the reason I celebrate Thanksgiving or the reason I celebrate Christmas and the reason it's important to me is because I love Jesus. Unashamed confession of our King. If that don't convict you, man, because that convicts me. I've been living in a neighborhood for five years and I haven't done that. I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there teaching through this. I'm going, why haven't I thrown a Jesus party in my neighborhood? Just had some people over. So... I'm going to try to do that here this year. See if I can do it around Christmas time. God calls us to follow His plan, not our version of His plan. The Pharisees, what they wanted, they were trying to 
fit something into their deal. And these disciples of John the Baptist, they were trying to do that. Don't take God's plan and try to conform it to your life. Let him lead you and just follow him like Matthew did. And he can use you for his glory.